Welcome to another episode of the WBT Wrath Bearing Trees podcast. I, Adrian Bonnenberger, am joined by Tom Ricks, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of First Principles. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. First Principles is a book that I encountered uh, shortly before it came out in concept, and then I got it as a Christmas gift, read it, and was immediately blown away. Can you talk a little bit for listeners who may not be familiar with it, what it is conceptually and how you came to write it? It's interesting because with a lot of books, you're not really sure where they came from. This, I can tell you not only the place, but the exact time. It was the morning, the Wednesday morning, after the presidential election of 2016. I woke up, it was a gray morning, I was in my house in Maine, and I went down to my library and I took Aristotle's politics off the shelf. And I did this because when you have a situation you don't understand, I'd been taught in college, go back to the fundamentals, go back to the fundamental rules and understanding. And with politics, that means go back to Aristotle. So I took Aristotle's politics down the shelf, rereading it for the first time since college, And I was reading it in the context of the election of Donald Trump. What had happened here in my country? I didn't understand Trump winning the election of 2016. I didn't understand what the country was saying. And I was surprised that we had come to this. Immediately, a couple of things jumped out at me. One was that Aristotle, in discussing the basic forms of government, says that aristocracy, when it becomes distorted, becomes oligarchy aristocracy being ruled by the best, oligarchy being ruled by the rich. He says, further oligarchy of the three basic forms, monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, oligarchy, the distorted form of aristocracy, is the most dangerous, the most volatile, the least stable. That struck me because it cast Trump in a new light for me. Here's an oligarchical leader And Aristotle is warning across the centuries, instability is gonna be key here. And then somewhere deep into it, a few days later, I got to Aristotle's quick aside. And by the way, he says, be very careful when the oligarchy is threatened and makes alliance with the mob, which I think is where we got last January 6th, long after this book was written and published. From Aristotle, I found myself reading other ancient texts, history and philosophy. And that eventually led me to the fact that the American founders were steeped in ancient history and philosophy and literature, most especially of the Roman Republic. I went in thinking probably as much Greek as Roman. One of the surprises to me was no, the American founders were much more focused on Rome than they were on Greece. Thomas Jefferson being the exception. Jefferson is always the exception to everything. And so I found myself getting more and more into Roman history. This leads me to Montesquieu, the French philosopher who really using the rubble of the ancient world creates the modern liberal democratic state. A state based on tolerance, understanding, on a notion that there are competing interests that need to be balanced that you want some liberty, but you also want some authority, that slavery is bad, that freedom of speech is good, and you want a regulated democracy. He invents the modern world, basically. Montesquieu is deeply influential, I think more than Locke, on the founders. 
And then I found this wonderful website, Founders Online, which I just swam in every day. People say the federal government's not good at things. Man, they created a great website. Uh, the National Archives, working with the University of Virginia, take every word that the founding generation writes in their diaries, speeches, letters, pamphlets, puts them all online and they're searchable by date, searchable by, give me everything Jefferson wrote to Madison in 1793 that mentions the word liberty. You can do these very precise searches and we can be much more precise than historians could be in the past. So for example, we see they're talking incessantly about virtue. There are some things they don't talk about. The phrase loyal opposition does not appear in any of their writings anywhere. Loyal opposition is really a 19th century invention after the formation of political parties, more in England than in America. Uh, the phrase comes into, into usage in England at about 1820. And so you're able to posit things. Did they use this? Did they say this? How did they talk about this? How did Washington write to Hamilton about this versus how did Washington write to Jefferson about this? One thing that came through to me, a real surprise, is I came to a real admiration for the words of George Washington. Not a well-educated man, but conscious of it, and a man who learns by experience more than by formal education. A man very good at reflecting on experience. A man who I think reflects American, the American experience much more than the other founders. He is just educated on the frontier. He's negotiating with the French out on the American frontier long before Thomas Jefferson is ever negotiating with the French in the ballrooms of Paris. So it was this long journey to see, for me, how did these guys arrive at their notion of what America should be? What was that notion based on? How did they put it into print? And that results in the Declaration of Independence because it comes from Jefferson's pen mainly more Greek than Roman, um, an Epicurean document about happiness. Here you have a state document that says a couple of times, let's talk about happiness. And interestingly, he substitutes the word happiness for where previously Locke had used the word property. John Locke wrote about life, liberty, and property. Jefferson says actually in the state we're inventing here, the purpose of the state, the purpose of government is life, liberty, and happiness. That's significant for a couple of reasons. First, it's a very different goal. Second, not everybody is gonna hold property at all times, even in the most egalitarian society. But everybody can pursue happiness. And so Jefferson, with that one turn of the phrase, that literal change of phrase, remakes the purpose of, the, of government. The purpose of government is for us all to pursue happiness. And then comes the constitution with Madison leading the way. It says, and by the way, guess who the government belongs to? We, the people. And this had been an argument. John Adams, even after the constitution comes through says, well, the people have part of the sovereignty. His cousin, Samuel Adams corrects him. No, John, he says, the people are sovereign. They own the government. So these are wild, new, radical notions. And the question that they had to face and that we still face now is how to make it sustainable. Can the American experiment live? 
there was an assertion in the New York Times review of uh, First Principles that struck me as a little odd. The reviewer wrote, familiarity with classical learning, a hallmark of European and colonial American genteel culture was not inherently revolutionary. I had this idea that part of what was revolutionary about it was that it wasn't classical learning back then. It was actually fairly new that these sources were actually coming into the mainstream and literacy had reached the point where many, many people could access it. We think of it cl classical learning today, perhaps as like, oh, you're learning Latin or Greek, like that's mm -hmm. quaint. Um, but back then it was this sort of really new, interesting, vibrant information. Did I, did I have that wrong or? No, I think that's right. The question is, how do we talk about politics? First, you have to have politics. Once you have politics emerging in this period of the enlightenment, more than just fighting over monarchy or the influence with the, with the monarch, you start asking, how, well, how do you run this thing? How do you run a nation? And for that, they don't have a lot of things to look at, especially if you don't wanna have a monarchy. And what's revolutionary is, if you're gonna say, we're not gonna have a monarchy, you've gotta go back and look at the classical world. So in that sense, looking at the classical world itself is inherently revolutionary because you're saying we want a republic. Well, there weren't a lot of republics out there. There had been a few Greek city-states and most notably there was the Roman Republic. The Roman Republic is the great shining city on a hill for them. Alexander Hamilton called it the peak of civilization. The question was twofold. How can we be more like Rome? Yet how can we avoid the downfall of Rome? And in fact, I mentioned Montesquieu earlier, one of Montesquieu's earlier books before his masterpiece, The Spirit of Laws, one of his earlier books is the cause of the decline of the Roman Republic. And so they're really focused on that. What caused Rome to decline? How can we be like that? How can we avoid the things that caused their decline? And they're very alarmed. They, they are taught that two things caused the decline of Rome. Luxury and avarice is one of those things. Love of the the easy life and so on, money. What generally would go into the rubric of corruption, personal, moral, financial, political corruption. The second thing they're taught is faction. They're taught that faction is tantamount to treason. And that's one reason that the politics of the 1790s become so volatile. Washington has stepped down as president, so there's no longer the father of his country sort of bringing everybody together. John Adams, a querulous, um, prickly guy, is president. He doesn't like being criticized. And Adams really is a follower of the Roman statesman Cicero. He wants to be the American Cicero. To a surprising degree, he achieves that aim. Yet Cicero was terrified of instability. His lifelong pursuit is stability. And Adams imitates that to his great, it should be his regret, uh, that Adams follows that impulse towards stability too much, not realizing that America is a rapidly changing revolutionary state. You cannot stop that revolutionary change. And so Adams becomes a reactionary and starts throwing newspaper editors in jail. I think there were about 25 significant American newspapers at the time. He threw the editors of 10 of them into jail under the Sedition Acts. He thought by doing so, he was encouraging stability. In fact, he was encouraging instability. By when you try to stop change, the system is pushing to change. 
all you're doing is further roiling stuff. So Adams, interestingly, makes history as our first one-term president. He's quite bitter about it. He feels he has been turned out by the American people. He's so bitter, in fact, that he does not attend the inauguration of his successor, not unlike Donald Trump. To John Adams' credit, though, he recognizes that he has lost, and he does something great. He turns over power to the opposition. There's a saying among historians that anybody can hold an election, but what really makes a democracy is when you turn power over to the opposition. And that's what John Adams did to his great credit. He did it in a querulous way. He got in a stagecoach at 4 a.m. and left Washington before, before the ceremony. Nonetheless, to his credit, he did it. And then interestingly, Jefferson does something. I have a lot of problems with Jefferson. He's a wonderful philosopher of liberty, and he conceives this philosophy and writes of it living off the sweat of people he holds captive. Nonetheless, he writes the Declaration of Independence, one of our two most important documents, and he does something else. When he takes power as president, when he assumes office in March 1801, he says two things in his inaugural address that are incredibly important in shaping this country. He says, number one, I'm not gonna throw the opposition in jail. Feel free to express your views. If you're wrong, and I think you're wrong, the public will reject you. And if you're right, you will prevail, more power to you. The second thing he says is let's everybody calm down. Just because you disagree with someone doesn't make them bad. As he puts it, every difference in opinion is not a difference in principle. And this, these become two hallmarks the way we run our system. It's interesting. I think Washington gives us what we expect from a president. And that's very much drawn from Cato, the Roman statesman. Um, prudent, wise, reserved. Washington is so reserved. And that's become sort of the norm we expect from a president. It's not written in the law anywhere. It's just the way that Washington thought a president should behave. Jefferson gives us how the system should behave. He says, look, we're all Americans, okay? Let's stop calling each other traitors just because they disagree with us. It's easy for him to say he's just won the election, but he also follows through. He does away with the Sedition Act. He lets the editors out of jail. He lets himself be criticized quite vigorously in the newspapers. In fact, while he's president, news is published that he in fact has a mistress who is a black enslaved woman. Um, he denies it, his friends all deny it. A couple hundred years later, DNA proves it's true. Uh, politics was very rough then. Uh, I think it was a lot like social media today. The newspapers, political newspapers were just emerging. There weren't political parties. And so they come really through the form of newspapers. They were very rough. They, people who were in power were not accustomed to being talked about that, like that in print. One of the people that Adams indicted or his, his administration indicted was there when a cannon went, went off near John Adams and some guy drunkenly said, I wish it hit him in the ass. The guy was indicted for treason, I mean, for sedition. Um, you know, give me a break, John Adams. One of the things that drove the writing of this, I think in part was my reaction to the HBO series about John Adams in which, um, Paul Giamatti portrays Adams as kind of this big old teddy bear. He, he was not a big old teddy bear. He was a genuinely cranky, irascible person 
Um, at one point, he receives news that a newspaper editor who had, had been very critical of him had died in a house fire along with his family. John Adams' reaction serves him right. I mean, damn. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what Thomas Jefferson is saying when he comes in. He says, let's back it up here. Let's everybody calm down a bit. And that's really the beginning of the America we know. My problem nowadays is we seem to be losing that sense that we're all in this together. To go back to virtue a little bit, the, the conversation of virtue, which is notoriously difficult to nail down and, and uh, the arguments over it have spanned millennia for, for that very reason. One of the things that comes across from uh, in first principles is you get to see this, the synthesis of the interactions of the founding fathers and how they are, how these acts of moderation and modesty and forbearance are what drive the political legitimacy. Washington denying the crown, saying, that's not what's going on here. Let's yep. do something else. I know you'd like me to be king, but president is different from king. And yep. say at the transition of power to Adams and then the transition of power away from the Whigs entirely and to this new democratic Republican idea uh, and so on and so on. And, and how it's about stepping away from personal power and permitting the, the we the people to, to flourish. Part of what's going on there with virtue also is, and this is another sort of revolutionary aspect that we kind of have lost hold on. And I think I didn't completely understand it when I was writing the book. Virtue is a public measure. Virtue says we can measure you, the people can measure you. That's a very different thing from being an aristocrat, which is I hold station by birth and none of you can criticize me. You don't even have standing to criticize me. What this says is that we actually will have public standards, standards of virtue, and either you meet them or you don't. The great shock to everybody is Aaron Burr refuses the standard. He basically says, I'm in it for myself. You know, you people can buzz off. And it's interesting, uh, the historian um, Gordon Wood at Brown points out, Aaron Burr is an aristocrat. His father was uh, president of Princeton. He comes from the cream of American society. And he's kind of from the old school, which is, who are you, peasants and shopkeepers, to judge me? You know, I can shoot the vice president if I want to. I'm a gentleman. I'm a dueler. This is what we do. And Burr finds, no, this country is not for me. And in fact, goes off and tries to make another country because of this, gets charged with treason, gets let off because of the lousy case against him. Um, but there is a real transition here. Virtue is revolutionary in that sense. They find out though that virtue is not enough. And that's where Madison comes waltzing along and says, you know, virtue isn't really working here. And this is music to Washington's ears. He has noticed this during the revolution. This is another thing about Washington that I really admire. He is thinking and observing all through the revolution. How are men behaving? What motivates them? What doesn't? And he says, during the revolution, virtue is not gonna be enough here. We have to speak to people's interest. Madison comes along and says the same thing. Together, they create the drive for the constitution. Let's get rid of this Articles of Confederation. It's not working. Let's create a constitution. The other thing that's amazing to me about this, that another parallel to today, people tend to forget that one of the things that drove Americans towards drafting a constitution was internal rebellion, insurrection. Shays' Rebellion in Western Massachusetts. 
and the failure of the federal government to be able to respond. These returning veterans come back and find their farms being taken. They haven't been paid their back pay by Congress, and now they can't pay the taxes on their farms. They shut down the courts to stop the processes of, of seizure. So Massachusetts turns to the federal government and says, we need some help putting down this rebellion. Federal government says, all right, oh, states produce some troops. No states do. Massachusetts eventually puts it down by the rich men of Boston paying for a private militia to put down the rebellion. Everybody says, you know, this is really not the way you want to be running this country. The memorial to Shays' rebellion in the Constitution is the phrase domestic tranquility. Part of the purpose of this new federal government created in the Constitution is to ensure domestic tranquility. People think, oh, the Constitution is, is about the states you know, having rights and limiting federal power. It actually was, the Constitution is designed to make a stronger federal government that can ensure domestic tranquility. Right now, we're seeing that tested again and again. Right now, for, you know, it, will the Oklahoma National Guard follow army orders? Will Florida's new state militia stand outside the federal regime as a power to be used perhaps in opposition to the federal government. These are shades of the 1950s and 60s in the South. People forget the Arkansas National Guard was originally used to prevent the integration of the high school in Little Rock. President Eisenhower, who knew a thing or two about the military, federalizes the National Guard and then for good measure, sends in the army and not just any army division, he sends in the 101st Airborne, which he had commanded 13 years earlier when it went into D-Day. These were powerful signals being sent. So we're kind of in an interesting period right now where again, some of the basic questions behind the constitution are again being argued, which again leads back to the two questions that the founders had as they wrote the constitution. Can you have a national continental republic? Montesquieu had said all the good, the sustainable republics were small. And can you have a sustainable republic? Can this thing last? And I think that's still an open question. Can the American democracy last? I would say we've only been a true democracy really in my lifetime, starting in 1965 with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. When you had 181 counties in the South that were black majority, yet blacks could hardly vote, that's not a democracy. So we've had a democracy, a full democracy, really just in my lifetime. And I think we're losing hold on it right now. I think we're becoming more of an oligarchy. I think right now the dollar outweighs the vote and that's not a good system because when the vote stops working, the vote is a great engine of nonviolent change. When the vote stops working, people start looking for other ways to make change. Something that I've seen you tweet repeatedly recently over the last month or two is a particular phrase about the role of government. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's funny, I've been thinking a lot about the constitution lately in terms of duties and obligations. We always think about the Constitution in terms of rights, and those are great rights. I think the Bill of Rights really defines what it is to be an American. A congressman who slugs a reporter is acting on an American way. A university that won't let somebody speak because they don't like that person's views is also acting on an American way. So we talk a lot about rights under the Constitution, but we don't talk about our duties and obligations as citizens under the Constitution. And in a perfect world where I could write hundreds of books, I would write a book right now on how to be a good citizen. 
using the Constitution. Uh, for example, the Constitution lays out clearly that the role of government, it says twice, is the general welfare. Well, what is the general welfare? Well, as Lincoln said, there are certain things that government does better than individuals. We know these are, for example, in this country, public safety, education, clean air, clean water, and most strikingly over the last year, public health. The government is all about public health. In fact, this goes back again to Cicero. Cicero said the fundamental role of government is the health of people. John Adams, to his credit, embraces that and talks about the health of the people in a variety of ways. We don't talk about that enough, about the role of government and the general welfare. Uh, we always talk about the common defense. People talk in the Constitution about the Second Amendment. They tend to forget general welfare. What does that mean? And what is the role of government? Uh, I think there are a lot of people who think they're all about the Constitution, but tend to forget that phrase altogether, including the United States Supreme Court over the last 25 years talking about the catastrophe of January 6th. And I think it's fair to call it a catastrophe, an abomination, because some people have said, oh, you know, it's just, it was symbolic, whatever. They were just going into a building. If symbolism has any utility, I and mean, we have symbols for a reason, we have a flag for a reason, then the de desecration of those symbols must also be consequential. The insurrectionists uh, were the uh, equivalent of flag burners. Uh, the difference is I support burning the flag. If you want to burn the flag, go ahead. I, but to invade the Capitol uh, violently, I draw the line left and right in violence. I, I totally support free speech. I support repugnant speech left and right. I do not support violence on the left or the right. And the symbol of invading the US Capitol, this is the building that Thomas Jefferson said should be a temple of liberty. This is, in the American context, a sacred building, and they carry the Confederate flag in there. That had never happened even during the Civil War. I think the 1-6 insurrectionists completed the work of Al-Qaeda on 9-11. Al-Qaeda wanted to attack the Capitol. On 1-6, they succeeded. To your point about the federal government being responsible for the general welfare and domestic tranquility, if you have seen true war, if you have actually seen what war does, if you've seen not a building damaged by an IED, which is bad enough, but an entire city reduced to rubble, if you have lived in that reality, then you have some understanding of, of the costs of violence because violence isn't, it's not, we're gonna do a little violence and then we'll have done the violence and we'll have made our point or we'll get what we want out of this. It's not transactional, it's exponential. It's a cancer of sorts. And you never know once you start doing it where it's going to lead. Um, yeah. I think uh, sometimes about Ukraine and how in the beginning of 2014, the country lost control of violence. And so you have all of these paramilitaries and these volunteer units, and some of them are very noble and well-intentioned and well-meaning. And a few of them are political reactionaries, you know, these sort of neo-Nazi groups. Yeah. Because once the state loses control over the authority over dispensing violence, it's no longer about domestic tranquility. It's about whoever happens to have a gun and some ammunition. Um, yeah. and, and it leads to all sorts of ills and misfortunes. And I think you're completely right about that, that the people who focus on the Second Amendment either are deluding themselves, like they're focused on that for some personal reason, or are actually malign actors. 
You remind me in your points there, which I agree with. I was once having a conversation with an Israeli psychiatrist. And the Israelis set up a program. They said, we're a small country, we really can't do a lot about the Balkans and so on, but we can focus on something. And so they, they created a program to help Bosnian therapists, not the Bosnian people themselves, but they said, we'll bring the Bosnian therapists to Israel, give them rest and relaxation and give them therapy. And I said, and what lessons did you take away from dealing with this sort of three dozen Bosnian psychotherapists? They said the single strongest lesson and the hardest lesson we took away was Bosnia was a society in which as a class, people no longer trusted each other. And so what do you mean by that? They said, women no longer trusted men as a class. Children no longer trusted adults as a class. The basic bonds of the society have been cut. And rebuilding those, yeah, is a job that takes a multiple of the amount of time it takes for violence to take place. I think it's a generational problem. Uh, you still see this. We see this with Holocaust survivors. The children of Holocaust survivors have a particular set of problems. And I expect that the grandchildren and their great-grandchildren will as well. There's that one of the things I remember reading in college for the first time was the Oresteia. And the Oresteia is a Greek play cycle in which you get to see the destruction of civilization and then the rebuilding of it. And the amount of effort that goes into, I mean, the Greeks don't even really resolve it. I mean, in the plays, it's, it's not even something that men can do. It's uh, it, the gods come down. It's, this is, yeah. you know, deus ex machina and say, like, enough, there's no more vengeance. Like, we're, we're yeah. stopping this. It actually transcends their imagination. They, it, it yeah. their imagination. And it says how to put these bonds back together. One tiny example in my own life that's always intrigued me is before my father was born in the 1920s in Wyoming, uh, his older sister was murdered. Uh, he, he would have, my, my father's born in 27. So this would have happened in 1924. She's about six years old and her dead body is found on the banks of the Snake River. My grandfather takes her body, wraps it in ice and a blanket, rides over the Tetons to the family graveyard in Driggs, Idaho, and carves a headstone with his knife on, on soft stone, soapstone, and makes a headstone. My father later asked his mother, how often did you think about that? She said, every day of the rest of my life. And so this act of sudden violence out of nowhere in the 1920s in rural Wyoming resonates in this woman's head for decades more. And I think shapes how my father grows up. And I wonder how it, I mean, my interest in American violence. How many generations does that one small act of violence affect? Well, war is that multiplied infinitely every day. It feels like a simplistic conclusion. And I know that it's been deployed both cynically and inappropriately, though not cynically. This idea that somehow we have, to get back to something you said earlier in the conversation, we have become too accustomed to luxury. We fail to see our own wealth. 
and privilege, even the middle class, even people who are solidly. I, I, I would put it somewhat differently. I think the corrupting luxury of our time is the ability to wage war without paying attention to it. They used to say America fights wars of attrition. Now we fight wars of inattention. The ability of a society to kill large numbers of people on the other side of the planet and pay no attention to it. And this is not just a societal problem, it's the problem of the US military. These sort of drone strikes, oh, well, you know, mistakes were made, sort of shrugs about it. There's one case that just really bothered me because I happen to read into it a bit, the Kunduz airstrike where the American AC-130 rips up a Medicine Sans Frontier hospital in Kunduz, Afghanistan, and kills all these hospital staffers who were volunteers from around the world and Afghans. Everybody knows they're non-political, they treat anybody, they're there just to perform surgery. And the Air Force response is to basically blame the army guy on the ground. The Air Force makes a series of mistakes and they blame the army guy on the ground, but nobody's saying like, why are we fighting this war in this way? What does it mean that we can kill so many people so easily and not pay attention to it? Why do we just deal with this with shrugs? We should pay attention to war crimes on the ground and things like torture, yet when they're killed from the air, oh, that just mistakes happen. The passes, the moral alibis that we issued ourselves as a country worry me. I think that is a luxury and a corrupting one. It makes a lot of sense. You'll see people saying, well, people in Congress should all send their kids to war. And it's like, no, no, no. The answer isn't that we need a giant redeeming civil war or world war to cleanse the corruption from us. It's that we need to not do war. I don't think we should would go to war so easily or so blithely and inattentively if we all have a sense that our kids could go. The biggest single argument I think for a draft is that it reconnects the American people to the, to the act of making war. Uh, right now, the American people aren't connected to it and that means Congress doesn't worry about it. And that means the US military just sort of trudges along like a big bureaucracy rotating through Nobody owns these wars, not even the military. People go in for a year and they come out. I remember a story a general told about talking to a captain in the field in Southern Afghanistan. And the captain is telling him how we're doing this and that and so on. And the general says, Captain, if you were here for the duration, would you be doing anything differently? He says, sir, we'd be doing everything differently. We're just here to get in and get out next year with, you know, with minimal damage. That's no way to fight a war. In fact, I think it is, it is a morally corrupt way to fight a war. Certainly. And I think that goes back to, again, to what you were talking about with virtue. What have you hypothesized both in first principles and then having, having had a couple years since then, having finished uh, the book, like what do you think are things that a, an individual can do to reignite some type of virtuous connection with their community? Because obviously, you know, mm -hmm. a, a single person only has so much ability to impact the military or the bureaucracy or, or Washington, D.C. For me, actually, this does go to first principles. And for me, the first principles of America are the Bill of Rights, um, and especially the notion that this is a country built on nonviolent change, which is the vote. The vote is the basic building block of American democracy. Things that help people vote are good. Things that stop people from voting are bad things that undermine faith 
in the process of voting are bad. Political violence from the left or the right is bad. And so I think we need to police ourselves. And since I am more of the left than of the right, I think I have a particular obligation to help police the left. Say time out, no. It's not our right, quote unquote, to punch Nazis. Nazis have a right to march and speak in this country. It's entirely repugnant to me, but I will defend their right to do so. Likewise, you do not have a right to pull a pistol on somebody and point it at them just because you own it, just because the Second Amendment gives you the right to own it. So I think there are basic rules about this country that as adults, we all need to work to do better on enforcing. And then also it's simply to educate people, to, to call people on it, say, no, actually, you don't have the right to do that. You do have the right to do this and to support. I'm particularly impressed by Stacey Abrams in Georgia. She has really focused on the right to vote, on ensuring that people have the right to vote, and on preventing the suppression of votes. That is a very patriotic thing to do, to encourage change, through the nonviolent representative act of voting. So I, I am trying in my own personal life to, to support things like that much more. I do worry about the country though. George Washington in his first inaugural address referred to America as an experiment. And right now I think the experiment is in trouble. Uh, I think we're losing our hold on democracy. We're losing our hold on our sense of the country as one big entity with some common goals. And I think we have to be careful about where we're going. The book is First Principles. The author is Tom Ricks. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I really, I agree with you about everything that you've said, and I hope that there are rosier days ahead somehow. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it.